Uh, I, I told the first service, I made a mistake. We should have put boxes of Kleenex in the rows. Man, um, some of you, maybe many of you know Tim and Sharon. They actually go to this campus. Uh, such faithful servants of, of the Lord. You know, I think about in Job, the book of Job. In, in chapter 1, Job is going through all these difficulties. His family dies. He loses everything. He has boils on his, all over his body. He's in pain and suffering. And he says this power statement. We're going to talk about a power statement this morning. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he fell and he worshiped. I, I think about the Maxwells when I think about that. And may we be like that. Because God works for his glory and for our good. So let's pray to that end. Father, you are good even when times in life don't seem so good, when things are just hitting the fan, things are bad, things are rough, and we are agonizing in life, we are suffering in life, you are always still good because you are working for your glory, which we get to partake of, we get to witness your splendor, and you are working for our good. All things working for the good of those who love you, those who called according to your purpose, Father, we do pray for the Maxwells. We pray for healing for Tim, if that be your will. God, if you give him weeks, months, years left, we're going to praise you. God, if you take him soon to be home with you, we're going to praise you because you're worthy. You are worth it. And so we pray all this, Lord, in the powerful, worthy name of Jesus. Amen. I was hoping, by the way, that Tim and Sharon would be here today, but they couldn't make it today because uh, I was going to have them come up and we were going to lay hands on them and pray for them. But uh, maybe we'll do that in a couple weeks, so don't tell them that. Uh, we want to be praying for them. Well, his name was Stephen. Stephen was a fairly new believer, as was everyone back then. In fact, he was appointed to the office of deacon in the early church. But Stephen was different. He was unique. He was just one of these guys like, okay, there's something different about that guy. Because he was passionate about Jesus. When you were around Stephen, he couldn't stop talking about Jesus, couldn't stop living for Jesus, couldn't stop pointing to Jesus with his words and actions. He just loved him some Jesus. And so he would talk to anyone and everyone who would listen about Jesus, everywhere he went, he was proclaiming Jesus. He was proclaiming scripture, proclaiming the gospel. And that got him into some hot water because in the ancient Roman Empire, that was frowned upon, especially with the Jewish leaders. They didn't like that because they, their, their perceived power and prestige, their position that they had gained uh, with the Roman Empire, or so they seemed, they, they, that was threatened. And so they tried to snuff out this Jesus movement, tried to squelch anyone who would follow Jesus and talk about Jesus. And so here's Stephen. He's standing before this tribunal in basically court, and he does the only thing he knows to do, the thing he's been doing all along. He just preaches Jesus. He proclaims the word, talks about the gospel. And as he's doing so, it makes them furious they lash out at him. They gnash their teeth at him. They rush at him. They threaten to take his life. And in that moment, he looks up and he sees the heavens opened. And there's Jesus in all his glory standing at the right hand of God. And it's seeing Jesus in his glory 
that propelled him forth to his ultimate demise and death. It's, it's what emboldened his faith to face death. So they grab Stephen and they drag him outside and they take large rocks, a number of people, and they're getting ready to throw them at him. And as they're doing so, Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this against them. Just like our Savior, our King Jesus, on the Roman cross, as they're nailing his hands and feet, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So they start pelting him with rocks, start beating him for several minutes, and his lungs are starting to collapse. He can't quite get a breath, but in his last moments, in his last breath, he says, Lord Jesus, receive me into your kingdom. Receive my spirit. Just like Jesus said on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. The word martyr literally means witness. Now, why is a martyr, someone who dies for their faith, a witness? Because when someone dies for their faith, when they are resolute in their faith, when they stand for Jesus, come hell or high water, stand for Jesus in life or in death, Man, that is a witness to all those around them, including their persecutors. And, and, and Christian history for 2,000 years has been full of persecution. And when the persecutors, you know, persecute and attack Christians, they see that witness. And many of them, many persecutors have gotten saved. I could tell you story after story after story. And irony of ironies is here is someone, a Jewish leader, standing there, giving him approval to his execution, and yet observing his witness, his martyrdom, holding the coats of the people who rolled up their sleeves to pelt rocks at Stephen. And his name was Saul, who would become Paul on the road to Damascus, as he pretty soon also would see the glory of Jesus, and it would change him forever. Oh, I wish I had time to share story after story of modern Christian martyrs. You know, in my previous role at Bethel as missions pastor, I would hear from our ministry partners about these amazing stories, breathtaking, awe-inspiring, humbling stories of brothers and sisters in Christ, men and women around the world who stood their ground even in the face of death, and some of them, yes, even died for their faith in Jesus because they treasure Jesus. They saw Jesus as all worthy, all surpassing. He's greater than anything I have or do or can say, so I will gladly die for him. But there are so many stories, I didn't know which one to choose. But even, even including the horrific events that we've seen unfold over the last two weeks in Afghanistan, I mean, just the atrocities committed against some Afghan Christians. And some of these persecuted Afghan Christians had recently trusted in Jesus. They were converts from Islam. In fact, a number of them last year literally changed their government ID to the, from the label Muslim to Christian because they didn't want to remain in the shadows. They didn't want to remain hidden secret believers anymore. They wanted to stand for their faith in Jesus and make a bold declaration. They wanted to change the direction, the trajectory of their family heritage. The problem is, that now the government records show that they are Christians, and they're at the top of the Taliban's hit list. So with that said, Pastor Steve wanted me to sh share this with you. I'm going to just read this to you. Something deeply meaningful has been happening behind the scenes this week. One of our ministry partners, Global Action, is currently working with ministry assets on the ground in Kabul. There's a group of over 400 Afghan Christians who are desperately trying to get out. Now, we know there are way more Christians in Afghanistan than just 400, but these are specific 400. 
Among them are some high-value targets to the Taliban, Afghan Christian leaders and pastors. And these efforts are very clandestine, the details of which we cannot mention for their safety. Here's where Bethel comes in. Listen to this. Some of them have not, some of them have been smuggled out already, but many of them as of today are not out yet. And so we must remain prayerful and hopeful. Once they are out and relocated, there are four relocation sites for them in the U.S. and Bethel Church is one of them. Now this may happen this week. This may happen later. This may not happen at all. This situation is in tremendous flux and uncertainty, and so we are prayerful. We have promised homes for these Afghan Christians to live in temporarily, financial help for their legal expenses and repatriation when that time comes, and whatever else we can do to help minister to these displaced brothers and sisters. When the time comes, Bethel will send out a bulletin for an informational meeting, so you'll see an announcement about that if this comes. For any of those who are interested in helping, we are working to get things ready should God provide us this unique opportunity to let Christian hospitality say something very different than our government is saying and doing currently. We are confident our church will rise to this global moment. Now, I would add this. Church family, are we willing to minister to and help refugees in the name of Jesus, even if it means discomfort and inconvenience for us? I hope so. Because when you live for Jesus, you're not guaranteed safety. In fact, like I said, persecution has been the norm for 2,000 years. It's actually abnormal for Christians to not go through persecution. So many brothers and sisters around the world are going through intense persecution constantly because 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. Jesus said, what servant is greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And some of us, some of you in this room may have to give your life for Jesus. So are we willing? Because persecution is part of the Christian life. We're in our final message in this summer sermon series, Bottom Lines of the Bible, which are key, thematic, representative, paradigm-shifting verses that perfectly encapsulate Christianity. And the one we're looking at today is an incredibly bold declaration, similar to what Patrick Henry said in the Revolutionary War, give me liberty or give me death. It's a power statement akin to Joshua 24, 15. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or Acts 4, 12, where Peter and John say, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved in the name of Jesus. And then several verses later, they're standing before that same Jewish tribunal. And the Jewish leaders say, Listen, you've got to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Just stop talking about Jesus. And they say, Listen, whether it is right in the eyes of God to listen to you or to listen to God, that's for you to decide. But we cannot, we should not, we will not stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Man, that's a power statement. And that's the thing about power statements. You know where someone stands after a declaration like that. There is no wondering. There's no wishy-washy waffling. It's this or that. It's black or white. It is a power statement made in truth. And Paul says a powerful one, which we probably, most of us have heard in Philippians 1, verse 21. So go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 1. 
in your Bibles or on your phones in the Bible app. Now, as I've said before, when you look at a verse, don't take it out of context. We want to look at the verse in context. So you look at verses 12 through 18. The Apostle Paul is writing this to the Christians in Philippi, the church in Philippi, the Philippian Christians, and Paul's situation as he's writing this is, well, it's not great. He's in prison, most likely a prison in Rome, and Roman prisons were not exactly the Marriott. They're not exactly embassy suites. It would have been very difficult, deep, dark, stinky, disgusting dungeon And he knows he's at the end of his life. He's nearing the end of his life. He knows it. His captors, persecutors know it. Everyone knows it. But even in his dire circumstances, he's encouraging them, basically saying, listen, don't worry. God is actually allowing all this to advance the gospel. All the prison guards, all the other prisoners have heard about Jesus because I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus and I'm going to stop preaching about Jesus. They know about Jesus and some of them are getting saved. The prison guards, the other prisoners, in fact, other believers in prison are now boldly, fearlessly declaring the gospel as I am, revival is happening. And that's what God does in the midst of persecution. Do you guys realize that some of the fastest growing disciple-making movements in the world are in areas of heavy persecution? What country would you say, just pop quiz, what country would you say has the fastest growing church in the world? Anyone know? Not China, although that is growing. Anyone know? Iran. Iran, a Muslim country that is also trying to snuff out the believers, open persecution of believers, and it is growing like wildfire there because God uses persecution. He takes what is meant for evil and turns it around for good, for his glory. I don't know if you've ever come across someone who is resolute in their faith so much so that as they near the end, as that old enemy death encroaches, and they stand their ground. One of the immense honors as a pastor, I've been a pastor for several years, I've had a handful of these joyful occasions. I call them joyful occasions. Maybe they're paradoxical privileges of being with folks in the Lord as they stare death in the face, dying with nobility and triumph and grace all to the glory of God. I mean, to see how Christ-centered the Maxwell's are striving to be in this trial. A, a couple days ago, I was working on my sermon, and uh, in our doorway, I guess Sharon had left this card. Maybe she did this with some of you. She was just leaving thank you cards with notes, and, and there's a front and back, a sheet on worship songs to, to listen to when you're going through trials. She wrote this front and back page note that is just, I wish I had time to read it, unbelievable how she's saying, you know, this is not fun, this is not enjoyable, and yet God is using this for his glory and our good, so praise him. Man, isn't that so inspiring? This is incredible. It should be inspiring because that's what resolute faith looks like. Now listen to these words. Listen to the hope that Paul has as he nears the finish line. I'm going to ask that you actually stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 1, starting just a little bit before verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice. Now remember, Paul is in prison. He's going through suffering. He's facing death. And yet he says, yes, I will rejoice. Who rejoices in suffering? I'll tell you who. Someone who's been transformed and changed by Jesus. Their outlook looks different. 
Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that's the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, does he mean deliverance from the chains he's in in prison? Maybe. Does he mean deliverance from this life of agony and suffering? Maybe. But either way, he knows he's going to be delivered. He knows he's going to be saved by God and have eternal bliss with him. And he says, through your prayers. You know, some of you were able to make it last Sunday night. Some of you weren't. But we had an unbelievable time of prayer, praying for Afghanistan right out here in the commons. I mean, there were, I don't know how many were here, uh, both online and live. And it was unreal. It was so beautiful and just rich. That's what a prayerful church looks like. We are burdened by what burdens God, and we get on our knees and pray. Because prayer is powerful. Why? Because God is powerful. Amen? And so he says, I know your prayers will work out for my deliverance. Then verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here it is. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that was far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are striving firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You guys can be seated. For to me... To live, Christ. To die, gain. That's literally how this verse is written. To me. Meaning these are deeply personal reflections of life and death for Paul. And for Paul, this is win-win. But also win-win for Jesus, win-win for Jesus' church, his people. How so? Well, the church will bear witness of Paul's life of faith if he dies, if he is martyred. They will bear a witness, martyr, witness, and they'll be emboldened in their faith. In the second century, there was a guy named Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, a Christian scholar and pastor, theologian, and he's famous for saying, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Like I said, the, the areas of heaviest persecution, that's where Christianity, believe it or not, against all odds, is growing and thriving and so Paul is saying, all right, you can kill me, but the church will see that and will grow. Or if he lives, they benefit from his godly wisdom and discipleship for however long God gives him. So it's win-win for the church. It's win-win for Paul. He gets to be with Jesus and live with him no matter what. Live for him, live with him. And it's win-win for Jesus. Jesus will be glorified through Paul's life or his death. It's win-win-win. He couldn't fail. And it's so much easier to do things when you know you cannot fail. Pastor Steve is really good at golf. I've seen him play golf. He's the real deal. Like, he's, he's pretty good. That's why he uses golfing illustrations in his sermons all the time. <laughs> this is going to be the first, last, and only golfing illustration I'll probably ever use in a sermon. Because I'll have people come up to me and they're like, hey, do you play golf? 
I'm like, I, I can hit a ball. <gasps> so you can play well. <laughs> I said I can hit a ball. I didn't say I can hit it well. Case in point, several years ago, I'm at my parents' house in Phoenix. My parents live on a golf course or near a golf course. There's a, th- a par three hole right behind their house. You can see it from their back porch. And so my brother, my dad, and I go and we get some balls, get our clubs, and we're there on the tee box, just want to hit some balls. And, you know, I, I, I set my ball down. I'm getting ready to go first. And I hate golfing when people are watching me. It's so much pressure. Like, I get nervous. I get scared. Like, you know, everybody's watching me. I turn around. My mom is there in her wheelchair. Like, you know, I'm, hi, mom. My wife, Sky, is there. She's watching. Everybody's watching. So I put the, the ball down. I get my club. I look up. I look down. You know, keep your eye on the ball. I know that. Keep your eye on the ball. And I do a nice, smooth backswing, and I swing forward, and I, you know when, those of you who play golf, when you hit the ball and you know, oh, I connected. Like, that felt good. Oh, like I crushed that thing. I'm thinking, this is like a 250-yard drive. So I hit it, and I go, woo! 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 I don't even see it. That's awesome. And I turn, and I look at my brother and my dad, and they are laughing it up. Not laughing with me, laughing at me. And I turn around, and there's my mom and my wife laughing at me. Because what happened was, and I don't even know how this is possible. This defies the law of physics. I hit the ball, and it went straight up and bounced backwards. (laughs) This was not a 250-yard drive. This was a negative two-yard drive. So when I say I'm bad at golf, I mean I'm bad at golf. But if you want to play with me sometime, go ahead and invite me. I'll, it'll be fun. But I love, <laughs> I love scramble tournaments. Now, a scramble tournament, I don't know if you know what that is. You get a team of four, and you have usually an A player. Now, A player, these are like the scratch golfers. They, they, can, they par every time they play. They, they're like, oh, you know, I don't get out much. I don't play much. And then they just crush it, and they're really, really good because they play almost every day. And then you have the B player, the C player, and guess who the D player would always be? This guy. And so, as a D player, I always go first because if, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day, you know, if I get a good shot, everyone will be like, oh, you actually did something, all right. But if not, no big deal. They're all batting clean up. It's no big deal. So I play loose. I, I have a confidence. I, I know that my team will carry me. I know that we'll be victorious. I can ride their coattails. Paul is in such a win-win situation. He's confident. He knows that through Jesus, he's victorious, that Jesus will carry him. He can ride the coattails of Jesus to glory because it is win-win. You want to kill me? Fine. You want to let me live? Fine. It's all for Jesus anyway. That's why he says in verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope. The Greek word for eager expectation meant straining your neck so you can look and see what was ahead. I think about in an airport, you know, you have a crowd of people in the concourse and they're all waiting for their loved ones to disembark the plane. And you have your loved one there and you know he's on his way. And pretty soon passengers come one by one and they run up to their loved ones, give them a big hug. And you're looking past the crowd, straining your neck with eager expectation and hope. Okay, where is he? Where is he? And then finally he comes down and you run up and give him a big hug as he runs to you. 
Paul is waiting with eager expectation, awaits eagerly with hope for a certain someone, and that someone is Jesus. Is that Jesus? Is Jesus coming? Oh, I can't wait for Jesus, and he's straining his neck. Jesus, Jesus, is that you? Waiting, knowing, that, trusting that Jesus is coming. He says, I will not at all be ashamed. It means there's not a sliver of doubt in his soul that he'll come to the end and realize, oh, man, wasted my life. It was all fake news. Guess this Jesus guy wasn't true. None of it was true. He's not worried about that, that he'll be embarrassed, that he'll be made a fool at that point. There's no speck of doubt. He confessed Christ as his all in all. He will not look back. He will not be disappointed. He will not be embarrassed. He will not be ashamed. Now, this is not how we typically operate, is it? And we tend to be more like, well, God, give me verifiable proof of your existence. In fact, you know what? Map out the rest of my life. Give me like the short-term decisions I need to make, the long-term goals, long-term. Then I'll stand for you. Then I'll live for you. Then I'll have that resolute faith. Not so with Paul. In fact, look what he says. He says he has full courage, complete confidence. Now, where did this courage this confidence come from. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4, the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's the glory of Jesus, seeing Jesus as he really is. His eyes were illuminated, awakened to the truth and splendor of Jesus. So he says to me, to Paul, nothing would ever compare to Jesus. He says, may Christ be honored either by my life or by my death. Here he is standing Roman trial. And one way or another, something's going to happen. Either it will result in his execution or his release. But either way, it was another opportunity for him to triumph in Christ. As long as he was alive, Paul would be consumed with Christ's concerns, passions, values, and mission. And if Paul died, he'll be relieved of his suffering. And he'll dwell with Christ forever. So he would serve Jesus to the end and he would be with Jesus in the end forever and ever and ever. He's basically saying, I will glorify Jesus by whatever means I have at my disposal. As long as the cause of Christ is advanced, as long as Jesus is glorified, you could kill me or you can let me live. Either way, in my life or in my death, Christ be magnified in me. Another way to say it is the first part of our bottom line, to live is what, church? Christ. To live is? You guys can do better than that. Come on. I know you're hungry. I know my stomach's going, give me those hot dogs. I know, but we can do better than that. To live is? Christ. There you go. Or to say this way, life equals Christ. If you were to make it an equation, life equals Christ. It's not life equals self. Life equals personal ambition. Life equals pleasures and comforts. We tend to think that way, but life is not those things. Life is not happiness even. Life is Christ. It's all or nothing. Paul had no notions of life apart from Jesus. Paul defines life as Jesus. Christ was the singular passion and uh, source of his life, foundation, the center, the direction, the goal, the source of meaning and purpose. Life is involved with Christ, originated from Christ, and is for Christ. You could almost hear him saying, in this moment, it's all about Jesus. And that's how we, that's how Paul writes throughout all his 13 letters. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ appears, who is your life, then you also will appear with him in glory. Or John 6, I love this, this scene where Jesus is teaching thousands of people and then he, as he's teaching them, he has a few fish and loaves. There's thousands of people and he miraculously splits the fish and loaves and he feeds all, you know, several thousand, 5,000 plus women and children. And they saw this. They saw this miracle. They saw this sign of power and they're like, oh man, we need to follow that guy. He's like a walking all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> this is great. What, if he can do that, what else can he do for us? And what gifts might he be at our disposal? What might he dispense to us? And so they don't really care about Jesus. They want the stuff that Jesus has. And so Jesus says, all right, you want to follow me? I am the bread of life. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now Jesus is not a cannibal. What he says is very highly symbolic. He's saying, if you want life, true life, eternal life, abundant life, it is all through me. It's all or nothing. It's only in me. You have to partake of me. It can't be a little of me. You have to have all of me. And thousands of people left Jesus. No longer followed him. If he was a church planter, if he was a church growth strategist, this is like the worst strategy in history. Thousands of people leave him with this hard teaching. He says, this is too hard. We can't do this. It says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? Simon Peter, I love this. He answered him, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior of the world. You are the Son of God. You are everything. We found the source of life. We found life and that life is in you, Lord. He is life. Jesus is life. So what does life in Christ look like? Well, when my treasure is Jesus, then my goal is pleasing him. Look what Paul says in, in Philippians 1, verses 22 through 26. We see that as he treasured Jesus, two consuming passions become invisible. First, we see that Paul wanted, to, number one, to strengthen the church. So he talks about fruitful labor. His labor to build up, to edify other believers, to encourage them would never be in vain. It would always be fruitful. He had such, Paul had such a weighty burden for the people of God, such a heavy, weighty burden for the church. In fact, so much so that in other passages he says, it keeps me up at night. I can't sleep. I'm thinking about you. I want to see you grow in the Lord and love the Lord and trust in the Lord. And I got to tell you, as... As your pastor, as a shepherd, I don't always have that. I want to, and I need to, and I pray, God, give me a weighty burden for the flock. Paul wanted to see their progress and joy in the faith, and he would work to that end. Progress and joy. Progress meaning growth. He wanted to see them propel forward in their faith, but also joy. Joy is a powerful motivator toward growth, toward progress. I mean, we often do difficult things because of a greater joy ahead. 
in sports, we don't just play games. What do you do before the games? Practice. Practice, practice, practice. As Allen Iverson said, practice? We're talking about practice. That's a terrible Iverson impression. <laughs> practice, why? Because you are looking forward to the glory, the joy, the better joy, the surpassing joy of victory in the games. So you go through the agonizing practice, the hurt, the pain, the struggle. And this is true of sports, it's true of music, it's true of performance arts, practice. Or what about exercise? Exercise is not fun. Let's be real. Now, I know some of you are like, I love jogging. No, you don't. <laughs> Deep down, you'd rather sit on the couch, eat bonbons, and watch something, right? Come on now. We don't like exercise. It's not fun. It's painful. But why do we do it? So we get a rockin' bod. <laughs> so we get rid of this dad bod. It's for a greater joy. A surpassing joy. Or what about work? Occupation, your job. Do you realize that studies, statistics show, surveys show that the vast majority of people are dissatisfied with their job? So why do we do it? To get a paycheck. So that we can earn a living. So we can do the things we actually want to do. So we do the things we have to do to get to the things we want to do. It's joy. There's a surpassing joy. And Paul knew this powerful principle and he wanted to help the Philippian Christians and us encourage them and us to see the ultimate joy in Jesus that he had, that Jesus far surpasses these lesser joys, these lesser glories, these lesser affections. His joy is so much infinitely greater. He wanted them to see that, and so he would strengthen the church, edify the church with that principle. But look at number two. He also wanted to glorify Jesus more in everything he did, every second of every day, I mean, look at verse 26. He says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Glory. Glory is the visual outworking of someone's character and nature and splendor. So when God is glorified, who he is is on display. That's what glory, glory is. The amazingness, the holiness, the awesomeness of God on display. So when we glorify God, we are shining a light on all that God is, how amazing he is, all that Jesus is. And quite frankly, Paul wanted to show off Jesus in everything he did. That's what it means to glorify. You are showing off Jesus. Have you seen my Jesus? Look at Jesus. Behold Jesus. Look at the gospel. How awesome is this Jesus? We could live for him. I could live for the ultimate someone like that. So he wanted to glorify Jesus. See, to live is Christ meant Paul so wanted to glorify Christ that as long as he lived, everything about him would point people to Jesus. So does living equal Christ for us? Or is it life equals Christ plus? Is that our equation? Life equals Christ plus earthly pleasures, plus my kids, plus my spouse, plus success in business, plus busyness in life, plus relationships, plus status, plus comforts, plus popularity, plus, 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 plus. If there is a plus in that equation, generally the plus dominates and overtakes Christ in our hearts. So that whatever follows the plus is what we truly live for. It cannot be life equals Christ plus. It's life equals Christ and nothing. Nothing. 
Christ must be, as he was for Paul, our singular, primary, joyful passion and pursuit. Truly, to live is what? Christ. Now, the flip side of this coin, the other part of this uh, power statement is so important as well. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. So we, we think of death as a loss. I'm so sorry to hear you lost your loved one. I'm sorry for your loss. And it is. It's like a part of you is gone. It's like a piece of your heart left. You feel loss. You feel it deep down in your soul, in your heart. There is loss. And when we live for self, there's a lot of loss. When we live for self, death is terrifying because death represents the loss of all that I value. So in that perspective, when my life's purpose is all about me, death is all loss. But look what Paul says. He marks death in Christ as a gain. Literally the word for profit, like financial profit. It's a, it's a profit. It's a gain. Now, what kind of gain? Well, in a word, and not to sound trite, Jesus. His gain is Jesus. Look at verse 23 again. I'm hard-pressed between the two, these two pressing desires of living, remaining on earth to help the church or dying and being with Jesus. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. To depart. Now, this had an interesting connotation. It, it, it really meant to break camp. So, Bible trivia, what was Paul's occupation? What was his side hustle? Tent maker. This is a camping metaphor. Paul is using the language of his trade, breaking camp and packing up the tent. So, you tell me, does camping tend to, in your mind, insinuate Permanence, or is it temporary? Temporary. Even the idea of a tent, this flimsiest structure that, you know, I love camping, but I hate setting up a tent. You got those poles. You know, you know the, like the thin black poles that have the little silver thing? You got to put them in, and then you put it in the little pocket, and it's not bending right because it's all warped, and then you snap it, and it breaks in half. You're like, oh, this tent. It's temporary. A, a tent, a flimsy structure is at best a transitory thing. A tent would make a terrible permanent dwelling, a horrible resting place. That's what a house is for. So look at 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see the same kind of nomenclature, the same kind of language. Notice the language of temporary tent and permanent home. Verse 1, for we know that if the tent, that is our bodies, is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on the heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, for what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of, here it is again, good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are, here it is, of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, whether we're dead or alive physically, we make it our aim to please him. Or as Alec Motyer said, camp life is exchanged at death for home life with Jesus. He is saying to be with Christ is far better. Why? 
Because when, the, when my life treasures Christ above all, death is gain. It's all gain because I get more of Jesus. At death, a Christian gains because they get to be with Jesus. They get to see Jesus face to face. They get to dine with Jesus. They get to enjoy Jesus forever. And if you are a follower of Christ and that gets you excited, you might want to say hallelujah or amen or praise the Lord or something at this point. We get to be with Jesus. And so the understanding of to live is Christ and to die is gain is such a powerful perspective. And we can see why governments or those antagonistic to the gospel persecute Christians because this is a dangerous mindset. How do you threaten a dead man? How do you threaten a dead woman? I mean, they're already dead to their old self, dead to their old life, their old ways, the old temptations the old worldly desires, they don't do anything. They're dead in Christ to their old self and they're alive in Christ and their new self. So what are you going to do? Tempt her with money? You're going to tempt him with sex? Tempt them with power? You're going to threaten them with death? All right, you want to kill me? Go ahead and kill me. Bring it on because then I get to be with Jesus forever. You're going to tempt them with pain? In Philippians 3.10, Paul says he would gladly suffer for Christ if it meant knowing Jesus more. Because the old self is dead in Christ and the new self is alive in Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. In Nick Ripken's book, The Insanity of God, which I highly recommend, uh, it's basically his autobiography. Nick Ripken and his wife were missionaries in Somalia in the 90s during the Civil War there. and He was there for six years and he saw the most atrocious, horrific things. He saw Christians get brutally murdered firsthand. I mean, he saw his loved ones, he saw friends, family, brothers and sisters in Christ get kidnapped. He just saw terrible things. And he found out that a bounty was on his head. And so they uh, expedite him out of the country. And he, he, he gets out of there. They, they make him leave. He wanted to say they make him leave. He goes back to the States and he's just wrecked. He's distraught. God, how how can faith survive such intense persecution? I don't understand. So for the next 20 years, he does a personal research project where he travels the world and he meets with secret believers, the persecuted church in China, in former Soviet Union, in Central Asia, in the Middle East, all over. And he hears story after story after story that are so awe-inspiring. Man, it's such a good book. I encourage you. It's going to embolden your faith. But he's meeting with these house church secret Christians in China. And here's what he says. The security police would regularly harass a believer who owns the property where a house church meets. And the police would say, you have to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house. We will throw you out into the street. And the property owner would respond, all right, you want my house? You want my farm? Great, take it. If you do, though, you need to talk to Jesus because I already gave it to him. The security police doesn't know what to make of that. And so they answer, well, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we know how to get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. The house church believers declare, then we'll be free to trust God for shelter as well as for daily bread. The persecutors tell them, if you keep this up, we will beat you. Then we'll be free to trust Jesus for healing. Then we'll put you in prison, the police threaten. And by now, the believer's response is almost predictable. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the other captives, 
to see them truly set free. We will be free to plant churches in prison. And now the frustrated authorities then vow, if you try to do that, we will kill you. And with utter consistency, the house church believers reply, then we will be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. Ripken goes on to say this. He says, if we spend our lives so afraid of suffering, so averse to sacrifice that we avoid even the risk of persecution and crucifixion, we might never discover the true wonder, joy, and power of a resurrection faith. Ironically, avoiding suffering could be the very thing that prevents us from partnering deeply with the risen Jesus. Bottom line, to say it this way, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It really is. To live really is Christ, and to die is such sweet gain. Now, why don't we live like this, with this kind of resolve to live for Jesus? I believe it's because we don't see him as ultimately worthy. He's not our all-surpassing affection. Look what Paul says. Look at verse 27 again. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Is Jesus worthy of our lives, church? Come on now, this is not rhetorical. Is Jesus worthy of our lives? Is he worthy of our death? Is he worthy of our everything? Imagine if you had a glass. So you see this glass here, nothing in it, it's full of air. But if you wanted to pump out the air, if you wanted to get the air out, and you had all the technology in the world at your disposal, what would you do? Well, you could try to pump out the air, create some kind of vacuum that pumps it out, but what's going to happen almost instantaneously? It's going to be filled with air again. Why? Because nature hates vacuums. So there is a way to dispel the air for something greater. Any ideas? What would you do? Did someone just say throw it in space? <laughs> fill the space? That would make more sense. Maybe someone said fill the space. You fill it with water. And now the air is dispelled with something better. And see, our hearts also hate vacuums. And, and folks who struggle with pornography, for example, pornography is just, you know, such an insidious sin that gets to the core of your heart and your affections. And I, I've seen men and women be like, I'm just going to stop looking at that. Or maybe it's not even pornography. Maybe it's greed or jealousy or fear, whatever the case may be. I'm just going to stop doing that thing. I'm going to buckle up, pull myself up on my bootstraps, and I'm going to not do that thing. And that works for a little bit. That might work for a few days or weeks or months, but eventually, because our hearts hate vacuums, something is going to fill that void. And if that something is not Jesus, it's going to be destructive. It's going to lead to death. We have to have Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish theologian from 200 years ago, talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. We have to replace it with someone better. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that Jesus is better. It's the worthiness of an all-surpassing affection. It's Jesus. Taste and see Jesus is better. So he's worthy of my life. He's worthy of my death. He's worthy of our everything. It's all about Jesus. I'm going to ask that you close your eyes. I'm going to read a poem by John Piper to you. 
It's just so poignant. Listen to this. See him on his knees. Hear his constant pleas. Heart of every aim, hallowed be your name. See him in the word, helpless, cool, unstirred, heaping on the pyre, heed until the fire. See him with his books, tree beside the brooks, drinking at the root till the branch bear fruit. See him with his pen, written line, and then better thought preferred, deep from in the word. See him on the street, seeking to entreat, meek and treasuring, do you know my king? See him in dispute, firm and resolute, driven by the fame of his father's name. See him at his trade, done, the plan is made. Men will have his skills if the father wills. See him at his meal, praying now to feel thanks and be it graced, God in every taste. See him with his child. Has he ever smiled such a smile before, playing on the floor? See him with his wife, parable for life. In this sacred scene, she is heaven's queen. See him in lament. Should I now repent? Yes, and then proclaim, all is for your fame. See him worshiping, watch the sinner sing. Spared the burning flood only by the blood. See him now asleep. Watch the helpless reap, but no credit take just as when awake. See him nearing death. Listen to his breath. Through the ebbing pain, final whisper. <laughs> 